aí. So, I'm in um, at my church. It's a big church. Okay, the church. Actually, I don't work there anymore. I resigned last week. Doesn't matter. Great church. Uh, I got five kids. It, it, no, it's an amazing church. I just have a lot of children, and you got to take care of them sometimes. So, uh, anyway, it's called North Coast Church. And because uh, it's, I mean, it's 12,000 people come every weekend. It's a lot of people. So you don't have like one pastor, like people get sick all the time. So you have to, you divvy up responsibility. It's called pastor on call. So this one particular week I was pastor on call and an email came in to Susan and Susan sent the email to me and she said, hey, you're pastor on call. And we, there, we have a, a, someone from our church. They don't go to our church, but they know someone who goes to our church and they want a, a North Coast pastor to do their funeral. So I'm like, okay, cool, I'll do it. And in the email, you can tell she's a little bit like uneasy about the fact that um, a church is doing it. You know, I don't know if she's got hesitancies or whatever, but she sees how big it is. And I think she thinks this is going to be some generic sermon. You know, I'm going to get up there and go, today we grieve the death of, what was her name again? You know what I mean? Kind of a thing. And, and so I'm, like, I'm going to make this really personal, you know? So I, I'm, the email reads, um, we want you to meet with this girl, Judy, whose mother-in-law just passed away. So I set up all this meeting. I like get donuts and I get like little um, uh, sparkling water for health to see, you know, LaCroix. Um, no, I'm just, it's a Kirkland brand. Um, I ain't rich. Okay, so uh, I got that all set out. She walks in the room and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna change her mind about the church, churches in general, whatever, big church, but it doesn't matter. I'm gonna change her mind about it. And she had like a, her, the, her sweatshirt she was wearing had a big cat on it and it had like a Pepsi stain on it. And she was mad at Obama for some reason for why she spilled on her shirt. She's like, Obama. I'm like, I, that doesn't seem, um, I don't understand. But anyway, so she, you could tell she was like a little bit, a little bit, she was just quirky. Quirky people are great. Uh, and so she comes, she sits down and I said, all right, <clears throat> I got my little like notepad out and I said, Judy, tell me all about your mother. <clears throat> so she does. So she starts saying like, uh, my mom's like really into bowling. Uh, my mom uh, was, a, was a, she was in the Air Force. Um, she is a, she likes to go to the beach. She enjoys NASCAR. Um, Dale, Ar Dale Earnhardt Jr. is her favorite driver. All these things, okay. Uh, and so I'm like, cool. So I'm taking all these notes. I'm, I'm gonna make this so personal for you. And so it's the day of the funeral. It's at uh, Mira Mesa uh, National Cemetery. So she's gonna have like military honors, okay? So this is like an important funeral. So I mean, I gotta, I gotta put on pants. So I gotta go to this funeral, you know what I mean? <laughs> Where I'm like, oh, I can't wear this? Okay, we go. So I put on nice clothes. Um, and I go out there and I've got this whole, I'm totally ready just to be like, just the best pastor she's ever heard in her life. I get out to the, the grave site. There's probably like 40 or 50 people there. And I start and I say, today, every emotion that's available to you is appropriate. There might be moments today where you get really sad. That's okay. There might be moments today where you're really excited. That's okay. There might be moments uh, where you get confused 
at death, that's okay. There might be moments where you get, um, you laugh. Laughing's even okay today because we're here to grieve a very fun woman who lived a great life. And some of you know that. Some of you might still be a little bit upset at her because she probably outbold you at one point. She's famous for having two perfect games, which is amazing. Her favorite driver, Dale Earn Earnhardt Jr., maybe she even gave you some gruff because you might be a Jeff Gordon fan. And I'm like, just, you know, it's as if someone in the crowd would go, how does he know so much? And I'm vibing, vibing. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, know? you know when you're like in the groove in whatever you do in your life? I was in the groove. And so I'm like, and? And obviously we're here because she's a great woman of the military, served in the Air Force. After I said Air Force, this woman in the front row raised her hand. And I went, I was like, this is brand new. I was excited. I'm like, an interactive funeral, this is fun. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm like, in my head, I'm like, this is typically a monologue, but let's go with it, you know? Like, I'll let the spirit move. And, and so she raises her hand and I was like, uh, yes. She goes, that's Debbie. And I was like, that is Debbie. And um, Debbie is, and she goes, no, 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 no. You're describing Brenda. The woman in the casket is Debbie. And I went, and I like had almost like a picture like a Disney movie or some other movie where the main character has like a flashback. And this flashback to the email, and I'm like, did it say your name in the email? No, it said, this woman, Judy, wants to come meet you and to discuss about the death of her mother-in-law. And then when I went and I asked her in the meeting, I asked her to describe for me her so guess what she did? No, friends, it gets worse. Her, her mother left her family, lived in Florida, was estranged, and wasn't even invited to the funeral. So I'm literally <laughs> at Brenda's memorial, who is the new wife I'm describing with all of the joy and excitement of my heart the estranged mother who left everyone and never came back. There's two reasons I tell you that story. The first one is, if you've ever thought to yourself that pastors are in any way morally superior to you, intellectually superior to you, or if you think you don't have a future in ministry, I can tell you, friends, I'll bet none of you have ever done a funeral for the wrong person before. <laughs> God uses broken, weird, dumb people to accomplish the mission. Secondly, it's kind of what we're talking about tonight. If you have your Bibles, we're in the book of Jonah. What, 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 what we're going to find out tonight is we're really asking the question, what is the true character of God? And, and here's what I want you to, as you're turning there, try to give me your focus, because I, I really want to create a tension in our hearts tonight. The tension in our hearts that I want to give you is that theology, 
theos logos, the knowledge of the study of God, is I would propose to you, I would postulate, I'd suggest to you that it's the only true field of study where every human on earth would, in some cases, claim to be an expert without ever even opening up the text. Everyone that you've ever met has an, has an idea or a knowledge or a supposition about who God is. And most of us, whether we're right or wrong, we share them with one another. We might share them as a culture. We might hear them through music, through media, through entertainment, through arts, whatever it is. All I'm telling you is that from the day that you were born, you have heard 100,000 different ideas about what God is, what God isn't, who God is, who God isn't, what God does, what God doesn't do, what God thinks of you, what God doesn't think of you. And what's ironic about it is as much as we might think to ourselves, as long as I make some nod to the cosmic guy in the sky, as long as I earnestly want to believe in God, or as long as I do him a favor by going to church and trying to be a good person, the scripture comes along and says, there's a lot of people like that in scripture. There's a lot of people like that throughout history. There's a lot of people like that sitting in this room. There's a lot of you who grew up in Christian schools. A lot of you grew up in Christian homes. There's a lot of you who grew up living at, like you literally live at Hume Lake. And so you, you, don't, you don't just sometimes hear about God at camps. You live there. You don't hear about, you guys, you, go to, you might go to a private school. You might live in a Christian household. So you are inundated all the time by what God is, what he does, what he thinks, all those things. But a lot of us, we don't have a filter on what to get rid of and what to accept. So what we found is almost like someone participating in a trivia contest at some local restaurant or some local get-together. We just think, as long as I know this much and earnestly want him, or as long as I know this much and I earnestly believe that he's there, that that's gonna be sufficient. But the Bible makes it very clear to have a misunderstood idea of who God is or, or to, to give a, a nod or, or an intellectual assent to just go, there is a God up there. It says, congratulations, scripture says, you have the faith of a demon. The Bible says, look, even demons, not only do demons believe in God, they know almost everything there is to know about God. To my fellow Pharisees in here, which is how I grew up, where you, can, you come to church camp and you go, I can't wait for the unsaved prodigal, lesser than, sinful kids who came along up here to hear what this speaker says. And that's your heart. Your heart is because you're good at Awanas and you can find Bible verses first and because you don't swear as much as the guy next to you that you're somehow gonna get to God's kingdom one day and because your moral code is right here against God that you're gonna meet him face to face and you think he's gonna ask the question, who are you better than? And if your list of names is long enough, he's gonna go, that is sufficient, welcome into my kingdom. And yet the truth of scripture, which is very offensive, is that everyone who's ever lived on their own accord cannot enter the gates of heaven, but has been destined for eternal separation from God without intervention. I'll say it this way. The guest list to heaven is only one name long, and it's not your name. It's not your name. Like the, you might think like God's got this massive scroll, and it's got like every, it's just one name at the end of the day. And the name is Jesus Christ. And that's not your name. And that's not my name. 
And so we, we have this situation where, where's Max? Can you resume your spot in the back of the thing? You're all, this guy making me walk again. <laughs> don't get mad, don't hit me. Here's the situation. The only people who get into heaven are people who, on, on moral perfection, have never done anything wrong, said anything wrong, had an attitude that was wrong. And don't get it twisted if you're thinking, well, uh, I didn't eat the apple, right? Well, what is this God doing? It's my favorite. What does this God do with me? I didn't eat the apple. <laughs> it doesn't seem fair. Okay, friend. Yeah, because that's the only sin you've committed, right? You ever lied before? You have? What do we call people who lie? Sinners? Gross. Okay. Sinners. <laughs> Even Baker's real, huh? Have you ever spoken hatefully about another group of people? Yes. Sorry, Bakersfield. Rude. Uh, so you've lied before? What do you call someone who lies? A liar. Good. You ever stolen something before? You've never stolen anything. Do you have a job? You do. What's your job? You frost cakes. Do you clock in and clock out? Have you ever checked your phone during a shift? You have? That's called time theft. So you've stolen money from your company? You know what we call people who steal? Thieves. Have you ever committed murder? You haven't? The Bible says if you've ever hated someone in your heart, you've committed murder against them. Have you ever hated someone in your heart? You've never hated someone in your heart? You've never disliked someone? You never thought, you never wanted someone's ill will, ever? Oh, you remember? Probably. So... So far, here's what we've concluded. Have you, ever, have you ever committed adultery? Probably not. You're like, I'm not married, right? How old are you? 17. 17. Okay, that's probably for the best. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to ask you if you ever thought lustfully about someone because I'm not sure. I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't know legal, legally if I can ask you that question. But so far, we've concluded, even if we leave that out, that every one of us, if you've not along any of those answers, the Bible would say that you are a lying, murderous, adulterous, thief, and then the Bible says, and if you've stumbled in one part of the law, the book of James says, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. So there's 617 laws that are set up in the Old Testament that someone must follow if they want to be categorically perfect. And if you break one of them one time, and that's just sins of commission. That's just sins you commit. That's just when you hit someone. That's just when you do the wrong thing. That's just when you swear. That's just when you steal things. We're not even talking about sins of omission. When what the, the, the idea and the plan that God has for you, you don't do. We're not talking about all the times that you walked into the grocery store and you saw carts and you went, someone else less important can take care of that. It's not even including all the times where God has put a calling in your heart to do something and you rejected doing it. So don't get, don't get into the mindset of blaming on Adam and Eve because, guys, we perpetuate it every day. The Bible says that all of us, every, we just make it worse. And so we got we to gotta think about this. We got to really ask ourselves this question. What do I think about God? What do you know about God? And is it accurate? Because you gotta be really careful, not just that you worship, and this is, this is our whole culture, right? If you do something passionately, we're on board with you, but passion doesn't equal truth. Intentionality doesn't equal truth. If I walked up here and I said, I really, really think this is blue, you would go, 
it's green. And if I started crying, and some of you, a lot of you in here would legitimately, if I made a big enough deal about it, you would go, your blue is blue. That is my green, but it might be your, right? We bend because we don't, when people get indignant, we're like, maybe all I know about truth is wrong. The Bible doesn't do that. You might have noticed that the Bible is, it doesn't really have revisions to it. It might change language as we change language with a lot less as though thou art ye, but, but that's all it does. It doesn't, it doesn't shift. It doesn't take cultural temperature before we, before we open it. When you go purchase a new Bible, you're going to find the same words that are in my Bible. Why? Because truth, absolute truth is unchanging. And it, it's completely independent of your feelings about it. And some of us, you got to understand this. You have a really wrong idea of who God is. And so you can even get in here and you can passionately worship a God that you don't understand. You can passionately worship a God that's not there. And all it took was me for it to get a few facts and a few things wrong to ruin someone's whole funeral. To where people are going, yeah, we're not talking about the same person. And I think for some of us, if we started, if we started getting up here and we were eloquently, I mean, you were getting asked questions, what does God do with justice? What do you think about hell? What do you think about salvation? What must one do to be saved? What role does sin play in the life of a Christian? Where does personal responsibility come in? What does God think on these cultural matters? What does God do with, with, with the things in our culture that we've become okay with? What does God do with it? You might cry and passionately respond completely incorrectly. And there's a chance that a lot of us are worshiping an idol. You might call it Yahweh. You might look for insights and you might grab out random verses from the Bible to make yourself feel good. But at the end of the day, our God is very concerned that he is understood accurately. And our modern day version of saying, well, this, I've been in Bible studies before, legitimate Bible studies before, where we read a passage and we go, what do you think this passage means? Who cares what you think the passage means? Paul wrote it. What's the question? What do you think Paul meant by that passage? But we have so individualized scripture that for our generation in particular, you have to understand your opinion of God, if it is incongruent with the scriptures, is wrong and it could be dangerous. If you think the whole repentance thing is like level 401 Christianity and you're good with scooting by just on church camp twice a year and that's sufficient for you, you're in danger. And as, and, and as a doctor might enter into a room to deliver a bad diagnosis, that's what I wanna do in truth and in love to let you know that in the same way that we're gonna see here in the story of Jonah, it's not just when someone bows down and worships a golden calf that it's idolatry. And it's not just when some of us who are so obsessed with being popular that we sell ourselves in whatever way we need to to make sure we get more followers. It's not just the idolatry then of popularity. And for those of us who spend every single day worried about the people who sit around you immediately. Some of you, the gods of your life are the people who are sitting next to you on both sides and they look like friends, but you worship them like idols. You wake up and you get dressed based on what you think they're going to say about you. And you continue to say words and phrases to fit in with who they are. And you would never admit it out loud, but when it comes down to it, they are much more your God than Yahweh ever could be. So are there, there's, there's more obvious idols. Maybe some of your parents have an idol of money. Maybe you have an idol of money. 
Maybe you've seen someone in your life who was an idol of drugs or an addiction or something else like that. Those are much easier to see, than mu- but, the, but, but the, the, the easier ones to see are, are so clear because we go, clearly, you don't worship Yahweh, you worship something totally different. The more dangerous ones are when we sit in the rows of Hume Lake Christian camps, bathing and swimming daily around the church and in the congregation, and yet we miss God. And the reason I'm so passionate about it is because I did it. I did it. If I died when I was a little kid, I would, like, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years, I hope they would have given a factual test about Jesus and not a blood test. I hope they would have given me a scantron and had me answer all these questions about what I knew about God. Like, I used to read trivia books for fun. Like, Bible trivia books were like my bathroom reading. I could tell you, like, the kings of Judea and the split and the 12 tribes of Levi. You know, like, I could, uh, there are 12, 12 tribes of Israel. Like, that was, like, my favorite thing to learn about. I didn't know Jesus. I didn't like people. I didn't love them. I thought I was better than them. And this is, this is what Jonah does. We go, but Jonah was a prophet. Don't forget what I said first. God can use really dumb, messed up people to do his work. In fact, he has no choice. Those are the only people available. <laughs> Look to the Old Testament. Every story is like, God used a moron to do his work. <laughs> That's the only option he has. Or he just doesn't do any work. Here's what Jonah says. It says in the book of Jonah. The story's bananas. Verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down? This is verse 11. So big number one, small numbers 12 we're on now. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, Jonah said. It will become calm. I know that it is my fault that the great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord. (laughs) Now they're all crying out to the proper God. This is Yahweh. Please, Yahweh, do not let us die for the, this is, I've lost my for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared Yahweh, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now Yahweh provides a huge fish to swallow Jonah. I love how chapter two just starts so casually, right? And then a huge fish swallowed a grown man. And you're like, okay, what else? Right, it's like, what? I remember like grown men are not like grown men of today. They're much smaller people, right? Jonah at this time, if you do archeological records, probably somewhere like five foot one, five foot two. So he's really small, right? And you've got animals that at the time would live longer. So you might have this big grouper fish or some kind of a whale. We don't know exactly what it was, but it swallows, swallows Jonah. <laughs> I want you to read like the first few words there. What does it say? In your Bible, what does it say? Uh, what's your name? Jacob. Jacob. What's the first five words of chapter two in your Bible? Or maybe, maybe, no, maybe it's um, chapter one, verse 17. Give me 117 instead. Now the Lord provides Okay, stop. What? <laughs> How many of you ever said the phrase or thought the idea? No. The Lord, on, the Lord only does nice things. <laughs> I, I mean, 
it's written in Hebrew, but it's translated to English pretty correctly. The Lord sends a massive fish to swallow Jonah. Like, talk your way out of that one, friend. Oh, no, the, Jonah couldn't swim. The fish was being helpful, like Flipper. Like Free Willy, he sent a whale to help him. That's what he was doing. No. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Like some of you are already, your paradigm of God's going, this guy's a heretic, right? Like, no, Mm-mm. get out of Jonah then. This book is, throw it out. This is trash. There are 65 books of the Bible. There are 66. I'm saying if you throw one out, there's 65. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his, his God. Here's what he says. I, I, I want you to get this because if you have any idea that walking with Jesus is somehow rainbows and roses, you haven't read the Bible. Or your reading comprehension just is low, which is totally okay. I've done like I read a book before and been like, what was that? You know what I mean? Your teacher's like, today we're gonna read the Scarlet Letter. I'm like, we might technically read it, but I'm not gonna be able to tell you what I just read. I took a speed reading course. I can read super fast. I don't understand anything. Neither here nor there. Listen to this though. <laughs> In my distress, I called out to Yahweh and he helped me out. Answered. Answered me. He responded by doing what? Here's what it says. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. And then he did what? What's verse three start with? You then hurled me to the depths. So Jonah is using this analogy. He's like, I was in a dark place, and I cried out to you for help, and you pushed me deeper down. (laughs) And as you start to read this, something might happen inside of your soul. For some of us fake Christians who are used to taking, every time we come to church, you get like a cardboard cutout of yourself and you like set it in the front row and it worships and it, 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 it engages and it says things like, mm, amen. And, and then you get to prayer time and you pray for things like your math test and like your sister's best friend's uncle's neighbor. You're like they, they got a cut on their foot and everyone's like, oh, okay, yes, in my prayers. <laughs> Absolutely. And am I, I'm not mocking that for the sake of mocking it. I'm mocking it because that's, there's no way that's your biggest prayer in your head. There's no way at the foundational core of who you are that if I, if I filleted open your chest and I said, what makes your heart beat? What freaks you out? What scares you? What, what doubts do you have about God? You don't think he exists? You think he's a jerk? You don't want anything to do with him? You're confused at why your parents are getting divorced? These are the prayers that God wants to hear, but what do we do? We have this facade and, and we go, church is boring. This is why church is boring. You don't go. You send an avatar to go in your place. And this fake version of you interacts with friends and you talk to your youth pastor and you say amen all the time and you worship and you do all these things while you with your doubts, fears, and insecurities hang out at home because you don't think that you're welcome at church. You don't think that's what, that's what church is for. It's not a place for messy people to do messy things. It's not a place for brokenness. It's not a place for truth. It's a copacetic sanitized environment where we all act like we're part of the 1400s British royal family. Hello, how do you do? Hello, how do you do? How are you today? You've been at church and you ask someone, how are you doing? They're like, not very good. And you're like, that's the wrong answer. 
the, the answer we were looking for was, just fine, thanks, how are you? This is why I hated church. What kind of trash facade are you putting on? And why aren't we talking about the junk that's in people's lives? Why aren't we talking about this? The pastor would get up and go like, hello, good morning. Isn't it a lovely day? Now God's main job, if you'd be willing to tithe more than your monthly tithe, God will show up in amazing things and your sickness will be gone and your life will be better. And God is here to make sure if you're an atheist, if you become a Christian, you'll find really quickly that life gets better. And like people would clap and I'm like, there's, if I just felt alone. Cause I was like, wait a minute. I got some good questions. I'm confused. And you go to youth group and you'd be like, excuse me, sir, pastor, um, youth pastor guy. Hi, what? If God is good, why, why do bad things happen to good people? Let's play chubby bunny and throw dodgeballs and forget all about that friend. <laughs> why don't you drink this mayonnaise kale and toenail shake and we'll just stop talking about your problems. Look, and you're, and, you know this, and your youth pastor knows this. I'm not, if you do that, your youth group, great. That's fantastic. My point is, if that's also not supplemented with what your youth pastors do, which is to teach the word and to answer questions, then it's, 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 it's like a, right? It's, it's like when little kids get their picture taken. It's like, hey, hey, look up here, look up here. Forget about the fact you're sitting on some weirdo's lap. Look at me, look at me, right? It's like, let's distract you from the hard things happening in your life. Let's distract you from the difficult problems you're going through. Let's look up here, look up here, look up here. And that's how I felt. I felt like either I was the only Christian that didn't get why life was crappy, and then you come to find out, you get a little bit older, you can go, wait, everyone was thinking the same thing I was. And this pastor's totally unrelatable. He's talking about some good life. Whoever called it, like, how's your walk with Jesus going? It doesn't feel like a walk. It feels like I'm in some, like, Spartan mud run race where people keep shocking me with electrodes and throwing frozen ice balls at my eyeballs and like <laughs> giving me gratuitous kicks to both sides of my shins. How's your walk? Who the f who's walking anymore? <laughs> where no one's walking. We're stumbling through life. We're limping. And this is where Jonah is, right? What's he saying? Look at, the re look at the reality of this man. This is a prophet of God. And he goes, that, there's no flowery of putting it. Like, you don't write songs about this part of the Bible. I called out to you, Lord, and you answered me, and your response was to hurl me into the depths of the sea, into the heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I believed, I said, I have been banished from your sight. You will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed then was wrapped around my head. He's getting dark. further and further down. Now the seaweed has come to grip him from the bottom and pulled him deeper down. And he attributes all this to the Almighty. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought me up then from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and you 
in my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. If you have, if you have a pen or a pencil highlighter, highlight this next verse. That's the key of what we're talking about tonight. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Verse eight. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. That's what the word Yahweh means. Salvation is from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it spit or vomited Jonah onto dry land. And I, and I know, I know that there's so many of you who sit here who you speak the language of Christianese so well. And you've, dem- you've watched how you're supposed to be at church for so long. And you've been so inundated with the talk of God around you that when we talk about the reality of you surrendering your life to God, submitting to him in everything, or even understanding who he truly is. It's truly an idea that escapes you, but there's a chance that because you've done it for so long, you're not even listening to me right now as I'm talking. I I wanna wrap up with giving you the four most common gods of our culture. The most common gods that you might believe and you might be even putting your faith in, but they can't save you. And if you don't fix these views of the God that you have, you will throw God away. And I'm gonna tell you what I mean. The first one is this. The first God that we serve as a culture, especially our generation of students, we fall for the trap of believing in what I call the boyfriend God, okay? A boyfriend God is a God like this. Some of us believe that we know that God is with us when we feel his presence. When we get into a, like a, a retreat like this, we come up to a mountain, we get away from everything, and we just, we, we out, like, the, it's like a spidey sense. We're like, I can feel God's presence. But then it's almost, that's kind of how we first came in or we first experienced God in some way. And then it's become almost like an addiction for us. We just seek that out at all times. We don't, re- we don't really have a discipline of reading scripture. We don't engage with his word. We don't do the very things that he tells us to do to learn more about him. We just become emotion chasers. We try to reenact the moments where we really felt God's presence. Almost like if you've got a boyfriend and you like borrow their sweatshirt so that when you're like, when they're go- they, go on, they go on a trip and you're like, I can still smell him. It's like, <laughs> that's a combination of BO and pheromones, but to each his own, you know? Like, <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Smells like X in junior high locker rooms and I love it. But some of us, that's how we interact with God. And, and, and the problem with that, particularly for you guys who are juniors and seniors or for you guys that are seniors, let me ask you a tough question. What's gonna happen when your chances to go to Hume Lake run out? What happens when you stop getting the mountain experiences? What happens when the reliance of your faith and, and, the, and the power of your testimony and the movement of the spirit in your life isn't reliant on you going somewhere for people to take you away from distractions, to force you out of those bad friends groups, to bring you out into a place where you focus on God's word and on worshiping him. What are you gonna do when that's no longer provided to you? I'll tell you what's gonna happen to a lot of us. 75% of people after they graduate high school leave the church. And I'm gonna guess for most of you, 
if I said, how many of you guys plan on leaving the church when you graduate? Some of you would be honest and be like, I'm out. You know, <laughs> you're like, I don't know why I'm here right now. But the vast majority of us would be like, not me. The problem is, if you pick the three people sitting closest to you, only one of you is staying. And the problem is, the people around you don't think it's them. So how does it happen? One of the most common ways is so far in your life, you have created this version of God that is just a God that you feel all the time. You don't truly treasure him. You don't do what John 17 says. You don't do what the Bereans did in the New Testament. You don't do what Paul did. You don't explore the things of God. You don't, you don't delight in him. You don't, as Psalm chapter one says, blessed are those who walk not in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the word of God, the Torah of God. They're like a tree that's transplanted, not originally planted. We're all planted in the desert, but we can be transplanted by Jesus' blood into the river where we yield our fruit in season. Everything they does prospers. But what are those promises? They all predicated around one idea, those who delight in the word of God. But you don't have any concern for the word of God because reading the word of God is boring to you because it's not as important for you as feeling the emotions of God. But what you're gonna find is if you're an emotion chaser when it comes to understanding the God of the universe, your heart is too fickle, the experience is too few for you to ex extend a long-term relationship with God based on the feelings involved in camp experiences. And you'll go back home and you'll stop going to church, but when signups come for the next one, there you are again. Friend, what are you gonna do when there's none left? The second God that we serve that we can serve, we can create in our minds, especially in our culture, is what I call the cosmic genie. The cosmic genie is the one where as long as you're making requests that make sense to you and are not too selfish, God is gonna respond the way that you ask him to. That's who God is. If you ask appropriately, some of you, you even, you've prayed before and God's answered it, and so almost like hocus pocus, you try to like recreate the very environment you were in and how you asked to get God to do it again. As if God's going, no, I'm not gonna do it unless you're wearing that blue jacket that one time. But we do. We treat God almost, we, we treat God like a genie, like, okay, I gotta rub the lamp, I gotta say, I wish that, but you're not gonna say those words. You're gonna go, okay, I gotta, okay, I gotta stop that sin for a little bit. I gotta watch where I'm going. I gotta, gotta get off of pornography for one week. Okay, and then I gotta go back to church and I gotta go to my life group and then I can pray for my mom's health. Because then, I'll be able to approach God's throne. Because now I've cut out some of those things, I've been back in church. The problem I have with that isn't as much in the idea that there's moments in your life where you feel unworthy to approach God's throne. My concern with that idea is that you think that in any way, because of what you do, you have the ability to approach, approach God's throne. That's the concerning thing that without the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ and the cross and his forgiveness, redemption, resurrection, and then substitution of his grace on you, you could never approach his throne. And there's no recipe you can get to be more in his likeness or to, to get a little more better in with him where he likes you a little bit more. We have anthropomorphized God. You've treated God like you treat a human and he's not human. Isaiah 55 verses eight and nine may be the most criminally rejected verses in scripture. It says this, Isaiah 55, verses eight and nine. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. In fact, as higher as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways greater than yours, declares the Lord. 
But when it comes down to it with a cosmic genie God, we go, for sure, but like, I get it. I know it. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, when you pray, you do not know what to pray for, period. There's no caveats there. That's pretty upsetting, right? We're like, no, I know what I want. I know what I want to pray for. The Bible says, no, you don't even know what you want to pray for. You have no clue what you want to pray for. The Bible sees us the same way that we would see ourselves. How many of you guys remember what you wanted more than anything else when you were like seven years old? Remember what your whole life was about when you were seven years old? Imagine if God answered all your prayers in the affirmative when you were seven years old. What would your life be like right now? Most of you would be like supremely diabetic, right? I just want all the candy in the world. I want to eat it all the time. That's my son is seven. That's all he wants. He thinks the whole, all of life is about getting more candy. He thinks that's like the big thing. That's why Halloween's so confusing for him. He's like, so I knock, they just free candy. I don't get it. <laughs> How many of you guys look back on when you were like in junior high and you might watch an old video that you were in or like read your journal and you get the biggest dumb chills of your life. You're like, what was I thinking? What was I doing? Why was I worried about that? Why was I concerned about that? What was I praying about, right? And you see their name in the journal and you're like, Lord, if only I could end up with them, my life would be great. And now you're like, what the heck was I thinking? (laughs) And the funny thing about that is as we laugh, we also think to ourselves, now I know. As a 33 year old, I can tell you, I look back on what I was like in high school and I'm like, Thank you, Jesus, for not answering my prayers when I was in high school. You're like, well, I'm a mature high schooler. I promise, friend. You will get later in your life. And every season of life, you look back and go, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? What was I thinking? What was I thinking? And now I've not gotten too stupid to think that in five years, I'm going to look back on 33-year-old me and think what? What was that guy thinking? And so God is just telling us, he's like, you're going to go through that process your whole life. And you might die at the ripe old age of 90. And when you die at the ripe old age of 90, you will be closer in intellect, wisdom, foresight, and posture to a two-year-old than you'll ever be to me. So don't think you know what I know. Don't think you understand what I understand. Don't think you see what I see. But those of us who believe in a cosmic genie simply think, God thinks like me, therefore he would give me what I wanted. The problem with that is, what happens as soon as you don't get what you want? You simply go, well, God must not be real. Because if he did, I would have X. If he would, he would have stopped this. The third God is the anti-science God. I don't have much time, so I'm not going to delve too deeply into that one. Uh, I'm doing an apologetic se- uh, seminar tomorrow morning to kind of talk about like, the um, reasons why we believe that God exists, from math, science, all those things, evidence of God's existence, proof that God exists. Like, we'll do all that tomorrow. But a lot of us walk into a weekend like this, and we go, I'm excited to be surrounded by so many incompetent people who believe in the fairy tale of Jesus. And all these people who think, they gotta, you, when you walk into church, this is what I thought, when I walk into church, I gotta check my brain at the door and be willing just to have a time where you go, I'm just gonna feel, I'm not gonna think. Because when I think, and you start talking about Noah's Ark, or like a snake talking to people, or like um, uh, giant fish, fish, good example. That's from the book of Jonah. I've read that before. I don't know why that wasn't the first thing that came to my mind. And I don't appreciate your ridicule, Bakersfield, okay? You go to Stockdale? Oh, okay, that's not. Because of your association, I'm gonna let it go. I'm gonna let that one go. But this is what we think. 
God's not real. God couldn't be real. Jesus, fictitious. We watch Religious with Bill Maher and we watch these other shows and YouTube clips of some guy called Naked Steve sitting in his basement going, let me tell you what, God's not real. And we're like, this guy seems smart, <laughs> you know? But we don't actually, if you're real with yourself, which is what I get to do a lot in interacting with people who are considered themselves agnostic and atheist, when I look at their library, guess what's missing? Christian thinkers, Christian apologists. I was, I, I did not believe all this stuff. I believe that it was important. Christians are the most charitable group of people on planet earth. They have more organizations that help people who are poor and needy and who need water and who need clothes and orphans. They're the number one people who adopt people. They're the number one people who give money to organizations. They're the number one people who stop wars and forget. They're the number one. I'm glad we've got them. As long as you don't make me, don't make me confess that I believe this stuff. A virgin gave birth to Jesus. He died on the cross. He came back to life. That's not scientific. And that was my hangup. Some of you are like that, but here's what, I know what you know. I didn't really have a hang up with it intellectually because I never pursued what Christians thought about it. I wanted to justify being autonomous. I wanted to justify being my own king. You wanna know what makes that really easy? If you just go, well, there is no God. I'm not really gonna research whether or not there is. I just think that so I can get away with whatever I wanna get away with. The fourth one, and this is probably the most pressing one in our culture to end with, is what we call bodyguard God. Bodyguard God is the God who almost like an umbrella over your life is there to stop all bad things from happening to you. And it's pushed and it's prodded by the platitudes of our culture where we walk around and we tell people, don't worry, God is going to make all of this good. Oh, oh don't you worry. God's got a plan for this. And in one very real sense, for sure, God makes beauty from ashes. God can take a broken piece of pottery and if it's willing to get back on his wheel to shape it into something, into, into something useful. But don't, friends, don't make a mistake. God's plan A was perfection in Eden, perfect relationship with him, no sin, and we screwed that up. And now our world is plagued with sin and never once the scripture ever promise us that your life will be worry-free or hassle-free or pain-free or suffering-free or cancer-free or death-free or miscarriage-free or divorce-free or rejection-free or betrayal-free or mental health-free. There's nothing that scripture ever makes a promise of, particularly when you follow Jesus, that you will in any way be, prote be protected from the crap of this life. In fact, Jesus kind of doubles down on it. He says, and if you follow me, they're gonna hate you even more. Because you will be a walking, talking representation for a lot of people who are perishing of the hope that they don't have and you're gonna bug them. Jesus makes this promise to us so clearly. In this world, you will have success. That's in the book of Second Hesitation, chapter four. It's not even a real book of the Bible. What does he say? In this world you will have good, depending on your version, trouble, suffering. This is the promise that Jesus makes. So what do we do when we walk around and something happens in our life and it hurts us and it's painful and it causes us to suffer and we go, where are you, God? You must not be real. We forget the life that Jesus led. 
Imagine if the philosophy of God being a cosmic bodyguard were true. What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with the perfect moral man who walked around doing nothing but feeding 5,000 people from a kid's lunchbox, from healing people who were hurt, from giving sight to the blind, from giving a voice to the voiceless, from fixing a woman's flow of blood for 12 years, from raising a little girl back to life by just saying, Talita Kume, come back, little girl. What do you do with a man who's able to bring someone out of a tomb named Elijah and he walks again? What do you do with Jesus who did all these things in perfection, never sinned, And Isaiah says it so clearly. He was a man marked by suffering. He was a suffering servant. Smitten, smitten, stricken, and afflicted. It was as if God had a vendetta against him, the scripture says. For it was the will of God to crush him. That's new for a lot of us, right? Who killed Jesus? God did. Why? Because it's the only way to fix the gap between me and Max. You forget he was back there? I didn't. I've been looking at him the whole time. There's a solution to the problem that exists inside of the question of what do we do about the gap between who I am, decrepit, terrible, guilty of the punishment, guilty of pinning Jesus to the cross myself, and where I need to be, which is where Max is, which is completely perfect in order to attain the gates of heaven. What do we do with the gap here? You can't start to to transgress it. You can't start to go that direction. Every step we take trying to get closer to Max actually ends in our own pride, and it puts us further back this way. And so we find in the text this promise over and over again. Even Paul, who writes the majority of the books in the New Testament, I think 13 are actually attributed to him. And yet what happens in Paul's life? He's in jail, he's snake-bitten, he's shipwrecked more than once, and he finishes life by being beheaded in Nero's circus. It's, it's easy to say, okay, It's really easy to talk about understanding that we've got a good God and we've got the brokenness and the crop of sin in this world. The reason I'm so passionate about you understanding this is because if the world promises that there's a storm ahead of you, if the world promises you're gonna have stuff in your life, if the world promises it's gonna hit the fan, that is the most likely thing, the reason that three out of four of you are gonna leave the church is because something bad's gonna happen to you and you don't have the theological depth to deal with it. You're not gonna know how to interpret it. You're gonna be great at dodgeball and good at chubby bunny and perfect at putting your facade forward and having that fake version of you go up. But because you've never been real and asked hard questions and done hard things and submitted your life to Jesus, that pain and that suffering and that struggle is gonna hit you and you will lower your theology to match your pain, which means you will, you will create a God that doesn't actually exist. You'll create a God who says, it's okay that I don't do this. It's okay that I think like this. It's okay. And you'll no longer rely on the God of the Bible. You will make one up in your head. And what does it say in the text? Those who cling to worthless idols will reject the love that God has for them. To worship a God that doesn't exist is to cling to an idol that can't save you. And I'm talking to you about this, but I'm kind of preaching to myself. (sighs) 
On March 24th, my fifth child was born. His name is Finley. And he's beautiful. She turned nine months old just the other day. After she was born, my, my wife Paige was diagnosed with a pulmonary embolism. It's a blood clot on your lungs. We went to the doctor's office because she had really bad back pain. The doctor said, you almost died. I'm glad you came in. They started giving her blood thinners. My wife was so afraid of death and because the pulmonary embolism started hurting at nighttime, her brain made its association between sleeping and death. And so she stopped sleeping. And the first night, she was about, it was about two in the morning. She hadn't slept at all and she woke me up and she said goodbye to me. She said, I'm not gonna make it through the night. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And, and she was so freaked out that she was gonna die, that whenever she would put her head down on her pillow or she would ever get in bed or whatever, this adrenaline rush would kind of consume her whole body and she couldn't sleep. She was a medical anomaly. She didn't sleep for day after day after day after day after day after day. If you get on Google and you start, if you Google like, what happens if you don't sleep for two days? It's like, you get weird, you, you want it, you get overly fatigued. If you don't sleep for four days, hallucinations can start. Anything after five days causes serious brain damage. <clears throat> My wife didn't sleep for 10 days. Straight. She was diagnosed with PTSD. She went into a neurological specialist who measured her trauma line. The trauma line is that part of your brain that has interpreted some level of trauma. And because of not sleeping for so long, her, her line registered at a 64. That doesn't mean anything to you, but our lines are about at two or three. Someone who comes home from the army who's been in the middle of a firefight is about 30. Hers was a 64. They had to give her the most intense tranquilizers possible that were still legal in order to put her to sleep. She came home, she became schizophrenic. I had my wife sometimes, and then I had this other person because of the trauma of not sleeping that long. She did different therapies, we thought she was getting better. We came up to Hume Lake one week in the summertime and I was teaching on the sovereignty of God. God is good. God is sovereign, and God's making me more like his son Jesus every day. The next night was gospel night, and I'm preaching the gospel, and I see a red coat on the side calling me over, saying you need to come right now, and so I run to the infirmary, and my son is there, and he's unconscious. <clears throat> his name's Leo, and my wife's bottle of tranquilizers was gone, and so I had a fireman tell me, if your son just took this bottle of pills, we can't, we can't do anything about that. <clears throat> the, our closest hospital is two hours away. We can't life let him out right now. He's already shown the response because he's unconscious. We, there's nothing we can do. You get in your van, follow us down the hill. If we stop at any point and pull over, we're trying to resuscitate him. Just stay out of our way. But Mr. Elkin, you have to understand, if that's what happened, there's nothing we can do. And my wife who had a trauma line of 64, just watched my son collapse. She picked him up from her room in Whispering Pines and sprinted to the infirmary, leaving all the other four kids behind, including a baby that was about three or four months old by themselves. As we headed down the hill, I noticed that everything inside of my wife was getting more intense. The trauma was getting bigger. Finley had an asthma attack two days later that sent us again in an ambulance. I just, I don't know what to tell you other than it just seemed like we were just getting slapped back and forth while my wife was declining so deep. 
into mental illness. And I'd never seen it firsthand before. My wife never struggled with depression, never struggled with anxiety, never struggled with any of that stuff. Didn't even understand it. And all of a sudden I was watching her as she began to practice suicidal things, do things that didn't make any sense. Jumped off my balcony at my house right in front of me, standing there. We were holding each other and we were kissing. It was the morning. We were, I was just telling her that I loved her a lot and she jumped off the balcony. And then she walked back upstairs and acted like it didn't happen. Schizophrenia, it's mental illness in its highest regard. I called a mental health facility in Tucson. It's the best one in the country about dealing with people with PTSD. There wasn't a plane out right away, so we had a private jet. I was like, I'll give you anything. They're like, it's 40 grand for the month. I said, I'll give you anything. Like, I'll, I don't care what it takes. Just give me my wife back, you know? Just, just fix her, fix her brain. Eight days later, she killed herself. July 31st of 2021, my wife took her own life in the mental health facility. And that phone call, it's like, what do you do with that? What do you do with God and then a phone call like that at the same time? Mr. Elkin, last this morning, your wife attempted to take her life and she was successful. Excuse me, what did you just tell me? Did you just tell me I'm a single dad of five kids? There's no response other than, what are you doing? What are you doing to me? It's like your big thing. They just taught in your sovereignty. Now you want to see if I believe it? I do, okay? I'm not going anywhere. John 6, 66, Peter says, like, you, you alone hold the keys to eternal life. Of course I'm not going to abandon you, but what happened to the God of gentleness and kindness? And What are you doing? It's been six months. I'm in the middle of my fight. I'm in the middle of my wrestling with God. I love him so deeply. I trust in him so deeply. But I can tell you something, that if your understanding of who God is isn't rooted in the truth of scripture, if it's inundated in cultural crap, or if it's been created by making of your own brain, when that moment hits, you don't know which way is up. You cling to the most foundational truth that you hold. For me, it was Jesus. And so I know I will see my wife again. Not today. Hopefully not anytime soon, because I got five babies to raise. But I, I don't tell you this as some pastor who's totally over it, who gets it, who's got it figured out. I'm in the middle of my fight. But I want you to see that this is what Christianity looks like. It's not facade, it's not fake. It's a real application to a real life that's full of crap all the time. But Jesus is the only answer to everything in your life, including the most difficult, the most broken, and the deepest suffering you can imagine. This isn't theory for me. It's not strictly theology for me. In Christ alone, my hope is found. I want you to know the God of the Bible. 
not the God of your own making. I plead with you not to cling to worthless idols, but to cling to the God of Scripture, for he alone can save. He alone can rescue. He alone will answer when you call from the pit. He alone will be with you when you find out the hardest things of your life. And I, I love you too much to come up here and give you four encouraging words through four messages. I, I want you to see the struggle. Like the, the place where Jesus walked was called Israel. Do you know what that word means? It means we wrestle with God. But the funny thing about wrestling with God is you're still in his grasp. When you wrestle with someone, it might be points of pain and hurt and humiliation and difficulty, but you're still in the Father's grip. That's how I feel so deeply. I feel like I'm firmly in the grip of my dad, Jesus. Tomorrow night I wanna share the gospel with you. I don't want you to respond because of some sad story or some shocking story. I want you to intellectually understand the call of discipleship and submission and surrender. Because if we get to tomorrow and you stand up because you were emotionally in the moment because of some powerful story that was told to you, you won't last. The world will rip you apart and will tear you down. Your emotional response to something without a conviction of your heart and a belief in the foundation of the spirit in your life, it won't last beyond the walls of this room. But if you know Jesus, friend, and if you surrender to him, and you give your life to the true king, Romans 8, Paul says it so perfectly, even as he's been snake bitten, shipwrecked, beaten, and eventually beheaded, he says, I have been convinced of one thing, that there is neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor, nor anything in all of creation can separate me from the love of God which I have found in Christ Jesus my Lord. And tomorrow night we talk about this pervading problem we still have of being here on the guest list of heaven's only one name long. Friends, God's confusing, but life without God is far more confusing. It's hard to make sense of a God who would allow something like this to happen to me. It's much harder to make sense if there is no God. This is all just DNA and Mother Nature throwing her clay around and it just happened to hit me and my family. But the deepest cry of my heart is that you would know the God of this book and not cling to worthless idols. Would you pray with me? God, would you submit your truth into our heart? Would your words become our comfort? Would your truth become our truth? Would we right now even inspect our lives and say, what is the God that I serve? Is it really you? When I look at my bank account, when I look at my schedule, when I look at my priorities, when I look at the way that I think, when I look at the people that I hang out, if I really, really look at my life and I examine it, am I actually serving the God of the Bible or one that I've made up or one in, our, in my culture and I worry more about other things? What is most important in my life? What is my king? Who is my God? Father, if we have clung to one of these idols, anti-science, boyfriend God, cyber, the cosmic genie, bodyguard, we have these really bad ideas about who you are, would you please wash them away and instill new truth there where those things used to be? Because when the storm comes, and it will, 
we'll resort to our most basic foundational truth. And if as John 14, 6 says, that truth way in life is Jesus Christ, then we will be as a house planted on rock and not on shifting sand. Would you give us the courage, awareness, bravery, humility, and vulnerability tonight to have discussions about what's really guiding and king of our life? And give us the, the bravery and the conviction and the surrender, if it's not you, to begin to ask questions about how to make that change now. Just let me pray. Amen.